On a window, in a lobby, there is, or maybe was, a poster of a man. In one photo he is bearded, in the other he is clean-shaven. The images are changed every so often, because if this man is still alive, he's probably changed too. The words on the poster haven't changed. They're still the same as the day the poster went up. Missing, OSU medical student. Last seen at the Ugly Tuna Saluna on April 1, 2006. Reward. It's been 15 years since April 2006, and the man on the poster, Brian Schaefer, is still missing. So where is Brian Schaefer? And what exactly happened on April 1st, 2006? This is Canonical. On the night of March 31st, 2006, Brian Schaefer headed to dinner with his father, then out to a bar with friends. Columbus's ugly tuna saluna was the first stop for Brian and his, fr- and his mates. All of the bars and restaurants near the Ohio State University campus were packed, including ugly tuna. Schaefer was one of the many students heading out to celebrate the end of the school quarter. Schaefer met up with Clint Florence after making the 10-minute walk from his King Avenue apartment. They were at the bar for around two hours before moving on to the North Shore Tavern and meeting up with Florence's friend, Meredith Reed, and returning to the Ugly Tuna. The trio was seen on security cameras in the courtyard, heading in the direction of the bar, and then again on the escalator heading into the bar at 1.15am. Surveillance then catches Brian stepping out of the bar at 1.55am, speaking with two women that Florence was acquainted with, They seem to have a short conversation and the woman leave, then Brian heads back towards the bar. At 2am, Ugly Turner called their last call. The bar remained open until 2.30 to allow patrons to finish their drinks before leaving. Florence and Reed both finished their drinks and were getting ready to leave while they looked around for Brian, but he was nowhere to be seen. The only other place he could have been was the bathroom, so Florence looked there. No Brian. So... Figuring that Brian had already headed outside, unseen by the both of them, Florence and Reed headed for the door. They are seen on the surveillance footage at 2.09am, riding down the escalator on the phone, trying to call Brian. All the calls they made went straight to voicemail, with Reed eventually leaving a message asking, Where the hell are you? The following Monday, Brian's girlfriend, Alexis, was waiting for him at the airport, She hadn't been in town on the Friday before, so hadn't gone out with him and his friends. She and Brian had planned on flying to Miami that day. It had been booked for months, and Brian had even been hinting to family and friends that he was going to propose to Alexis on their trip. Monday wasn't the first time Alexis had tried to get hold of Brian. She called him on Saturday afternoon, but her call went straight to voicemail. She wasn't particularly worried at first. She'd spoken to Brian on Friday night, and he'd sounded happy and told her that he loved her. She assumed that he was simply sleeping off the late night. However, when she couldn't reach him that evening, she began to worry. Midnight came and still no answer from Brian. Randy Schaefer, Brian's father, had last seen his son on Friday evening. 
He had been concerned about Brian heading out after dinner. The 27-year-old had been pulling all-nighters and looked absolutely exhausted. But he kept his concerns to himself. The family hadn't had much to celebrate lately. They had recently lost Renee, Brian's mother, to bone cancer, and Brian had been having a hard time with the loss. So, when Alexis called Randy with concerns that none of Brian's friends had seen him since Friday night, and he hadn't shown up for their flight to Miami, it was clear that something was wrong, and the Columbus police were called. Both the Schaefer family and Alexis were sure there was no way Brian would up and run away from his life. He was determined to make his mum proud, and her loss had brought the father and the two sons together. Unfortunately for them, this was only the beginning. Sergeant John Hurst is also a father, so he understood Randy's panic. Hurst began the investigation at the place he and his detectives believe Brian ended his night, the Ugly Tuna. The bar itself is a quintessential college bar with a spring break attitude, but still trendy enough to be located to the, in the gateway. And was a upscale answer to the increasingly dangerous and deteriorating south end of campus. There was surveillance, and this is indispensable to investigations. Surveillance being the silent and often incontrovertible witness to a crime, uh, which can crack a case open faster and more reliably than humans, whose memories can't always be trusted. No one could even predict that the cameras at the Ugly Tuna would only cause more confusion. When Brian re-entered the bar at 1.55am, he was never seen again. Not leaving, not hovering around any security cameras, nothing. Brian seemed to go into the bar and never come out. So, there are theories. Had Brian, of course, left the way he had arrived, he would have been seen on the cameras. But there were other ways out, though not necessarily public entrances and exits. Maybe he changed his clothes, put on a hat and kept his head down, his face covered. Maybe he left through an emergency exit and ended up in a construction site. That exit would not have been difficult to navigate, even if he was intoxicated. Or maybe Brian just slipped out in this anonymous space between the camera that panned the area constantly and the one that was operated manually. On the heels of that theory, as many as 50 police officers searched for Brian at a time, scouring the streets, dumpsters, and knocking on doors, they moved in an orderly, concentric pattern, starting at the Ugly Tuna or Brian's apartment, and working their way out, marking the distances in blocks and miles. They questioned friends, family, and all of the people who were seen entering or exiting the bar that night. They even persuaded the city to check nearby sewer lines, landfills, and riverbanks were also checked, but no one found anything, not even police K-9 units. So, maybe Brian's disappearance was a crime, or maybe a setup. Friends and family had noticed that Brian had been taking his mother's death hard, and maybe he was more destroyed than he let on. After all, it had been less than a month since the funeral. Perhaps Brian had planned this. Perhaps he wanted a way to escape the pain of losing his mother, and perhaps he would come back. Unfortunately, uh, Sergeant Hurst had another theory, and it had been gnawing at him since he first got involved in the case. Brian had missed his Monday morning flight. 
a plane trip, that it would have taken him to a sunny stretch of Florida, and maybe to a proposal to his girlfriend. Why would he miss that? It seemed unlikely that he would skip this trip. When people disappear, it's typically out of desperation and not at the beginning of a holiday. Hope. That's what Randy had in the first few months following Brian's disappearance. There were possibilities. There were leads. Ryan, uh, Brian's apartment was burglarized and maybe there was a connection. And maybe a lead would come with Pildram's lead singer Eddie Vedder when he took time out of a concert in Cincinnati to speak about the case. But nothing ever did. They were all dead ends. The tragic nature of this case was about to get worse. Randy's optimism splintered a year into the search for Brian. No one had used his cell phone, no one had used his credit card, and the hundreds of police and Crime Stoppers tips had led nowhere. No one knew if Brian was alive or if he was dead. In theory, Brian's features should have distinguished him from the other athletic 20-somethings he had... <laughs> he had a small, dark fleck on his left iris. Pearl jam tattoo on his right bicep, but every sighting and every possible sighting went nowhere. Still, Randy refused to give up. He still wanted to find his son, so he constantly reminded the world he was still missing. He openly spoke with reporters, crying on television, and he would post the city with missing posters and, and organise vigils and searches. He got to know the parents of other missing children and, with the assistance of Crime Stoppers President Kevin Miles, persuaded Ohio legislature to pass a, miss, a missing adult bill that established protocol prote um, for detectives in cases such as Brian's. Randy even listened to the advice of psychics, desperate to find his son or even his son's body. Randy listened to one that insisted Brian's body was submerged in water held down by whirlpools that formed at the concrete um, pillars of bridges. At the time of Brian's disappearance, Brian had lived in the 200 block of King Avenue. This was a, about a mile from the Olentangy River, and Randy was determined to search this spot. He searched for hours wading and peering into murky water for any sign of his son, to no avail. Columbus police continued the re their investigation while Ren uh, Randy conducted his own. It was so slow, almost frustratingly so. The detectives didn't have a single good clue to follow. There was simply no sign of Brian. They had searched fields and lonely patches of woods, followed up on sightings in Texas and even Sweden. They administered polygraph tests, even to a willing Randy, and questioned friends who would have seen him last. They watched the surveillance tapes over and over and over again, never seeing Brian except when he entered the bar at 1.55. Brian had truly vanished. They even considered a theory surrounding the smiley face killer. This killer is said to have had preyed on intoxicated college-aged men in the Midwest, murdering them and tossing their bodies into local rivers. There were also two New York City detectives who had retired and spent more than 10 years investigating the crime scenes of 40 so-called drownings. They found a smiley face painted along the riverbank at each one except for Bryant's. 
Some have suggested that they just haven't found it yet, but Hearst is unsure, and I'm unwilling to lead any credence to the theory. There's just no evidence that Brian's body is in a river. They're not even sure he's dead, and the FBI is pretty sure, generally speaking, that there is no such thing as the smiley face killer. It's just a big coincidence. Of course, um, you have to follow up every scenario, possible and impossible. They all need to be investigated. It just leaves you to take another step forward, maybe a step to the side, but you can always come back on track. Hurst says that they've got to keep their senses about them, but they don't want to say there's nothing to this. They might look at it and go, you've got to be kidding me. But the ones that they can follow up, they have. There have been tips, impossible sightings, and of course, um, false leads. For instance, uh, one young woman who was driving through Michigan uh, stopped to eat at a diner and was waited on a man who looked like Brian. His his name tag even read Brian S. Unfortunately, when the uh, police tried to follow up, um, the restaurant said that no one by the name Brian worked there and before Randy could even investigate further for himself he received news from the police in Michigan um, confirming that the waiter wasn't Brian. He obviously was both deflated and relieved by this. Um, In an interview 18 months after Brian disappeared Randy um, um, uh, said that he didn't understand why Brian had even gone out that night. he had been pulling all-nighters, and as I mentioned earlier, Ryan wasn't, uh, sorry, Randy wasn't so uh, fond of the idea of Brian going out that night um, after their dinner. Brian was clearly exhausted, and even though he wore quite a composed ex- uh, exterior, Randy knew that his mother's death had been hard on him. Unfortunately, this story takes a turn for the worst on the evening of September 14th, 2008. A windstorm had ripped through central Ohio, uh, which included Randy's backyard, and Randy apparently had been attempting to clean up debris, or maybe he'd gone outside to get something, um, when a gust cracked a limb from a nearby tree, hurling it in Randy's direction. Um, Unfortunately, Randy died, and a neighbour found his body the next morning. Um, Despite all of his work to find his son, Randy Schaefer was now dead. Within weeks of Randy's deaths, uh, detectives uncovered two more um, clues in Brian's case. Um, One was a post on Randy's memorial site which read, I love you, Dad, love, Brian. Um, The writer had listed his address um, as the Virgin Islands. But unfortunately, this was um, a false lead and it turned out to be a really, really cruel hoax. Uh, the second um, was a, t- uh, a tip um, about a field in um, Columbus. Um, unfortunately, a canine search of this uh, field also turned up nothing. Hurst said that he wasn't surprised about this um, and nothing really about Brian's case surprised him anymore. He was not the first person to disappear um, without leaving a trace of his whereabouts um, behind, but he is in many ways uh, one of the most frustrating. 
Not long after Randy's death, Neil Rosenberg, who was the attorney for Clint Florence, uh, wrote to Don Corbett, a private investigator who had been volunteering his time to help the family find Brian, um, contacted, um, this contact was regarding, uh, Clint Florence's refusal to take a lie detector test. Uh, Rosenberg had suggested that he had learnt um, the Columbus police uh, were investigating Brian's disappearance um, as if he was alive. Um, and in April 2009, the Lantern, which is Ohio State's student newspaper, disclosed the exchange. Um, it said... If Brian is still alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detective involved, then it is Brian and not Clint, Florence, who is causing his family pain and hardship. Brian should come forward and end this. Florence, uh, Rosenberg said, did not have anything to hide. He had merely told everything he knew from the beginning and did not see the value of doing so again. If we put aside the lawyer's mediations for a moment, many close to Brian have criticised Florence for not being forthcoming. Derek Schaefer, Brian's brother and last surviving uh, immediate family member, has always thought that Florence knows something and just won't come out with it. Um, He believes that it's possible that Brian is alive and perhaps Florence knows where he might be or where he might have gone. In 2014, police said that it, um, they were still receiving around two tips a month on the case via the local, uh, local Crime Stoppers hotline, but unfortunately none had been proven useful and the evidence in the case um, is now filling boxes of files. Um, Andre Edwards, one of the original investigators, told Columbus Monthly that after extensive review um, of the footage from the Ugly Tuna, which had been intended to uh, corroborate the idea that Brian had not left in disguise, uh, said that he was 100% certain that Brian had not left the bar via the escalator. There are some theories that police have about the case, but they have refused to discuss them, even generally with media outlets. Police still consider Brian's case open and an inv- uh, active investigation. While it's open, it's now been 15 years since Brian Schaefer disappeared, and we're still no clearer to having any answers. People who were in Brian's life have now moved on or, unfortunately, in Randy's case, they have passed on. Maybe one day we'll find out what happened to Brian. Maybe we'll even find Brian. But until then, if you're an American or even if you're not, but you still have information concerning the uh, disappearance of Brian Schaefer, please contact the uh, Central Ohio Crime Stoppers or um, the the police Um all of the Crime Stoppers information, etc., will be on our website, um, but for now I'll leave you with this. Brian Schaefer was last seen on the 1st of April 2006 between the hours of 1.30 and 2am. He was 27 years old at the time of his, his disappearance and was 6 foot 2 and around 165 pounds. Brian Schaefer is a Caucasian male with light brown hair and hazel eyes. He did wear wire-rimmed glasses but did not have them at the time of his disappearance. He has a tattoo of a Pearl Jam symbol on his upper right arm and was wearing a green short sleeve polo shirt over a white long sleeve shirt and blue jeans with white Adidas sneakers and a yellow rubber cancer awareness bracelet at the time of his disappearance. Please, if you do have any information, contact either the Central Ohio Crime Stoppers or the Columbus Police Department. More information is available on the findbrianschafer.com website. 
link to this will be in your episode notes and a full list of sources is available on our website. Thank you for listening to Canonical True Crime. Sources for this week's episode include ABC6, The Crime Junkie Podcast, findbrianschafer.com, The Lantern, and more. A full list is available now on our website. Follow us on Instagram at canonicaltruecrime to keep up to date with all the latest news from a canonical and be the first to know when a new episode drops. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If we aren't on your favourite platform yet, let us know and we'll do our best to get there.